And so um, the first half of chapter 4 sort of is like this. Daniel 4 starts out with King Nebuchadnezzar praising God. King Nebuchadnezzar starts out basically saying, this is what happened. Um, this, the narrative switches from Daniel's perspective or from sort of a, an outsider's perspective to, to Nebuchadnezzar telling the story of what happened when he began to praise God. And we don't know exactly whether Nebuchadnezzar had wrote, or told Daniel this and Daniel wrote it or however it works, but, but the story shifts. And in verse 1 to 27, it gives the story of, of how he got there. So I'm just going to overview some of these details, and if you've been with us or if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you know the popular medium of this book is dreams. The the book of Daniel is this very sort of mystical book about dreams and interpretations, and and the king has yet another dream. And Daniel's the only one able to interpret it, and um, before it was a big statue, and now it's a tree. Uh, In in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a big statue that comes down, and this time he has a a dream of a big tree. And this big tree is is providing shade for all the animals, and the birds are nesting in it, and it's providing fruit. And and a messenger from the heavens, from God, comes in his dream, and it chops this tree down. And instead of being about his kingdom, which is what the statue was about in chapter 2, this is about Nebuchadnezzar personally. God was giving him this vision uh, uh, (laughs) that he will not last forever, that he will not be all-powerful forever, that he will not be on top of the hill, as it were, for forever, and that he would fall. And he goes on in verse 24 through 27 to basically, as Daniel's interpreting this dream for the king, Daniel does something amazing, as we're coming accustomed to him doing. But he says, and I'll just read it for you in verse 27 before we pick up our reading. He says, Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. And it may be that then your prosperity will continue. So Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, Hey, this dream, though it was powerful and impactful, may still not come true. You may not be cut down if you just repent. See, what's amazing about this story is that God is sort of finally holding the king accountable. As we've read chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has seen the power of the Hebrew God. He has seen the power of the God of Daniel, but he hasn't worshipped yet. He's recognized it. He's seen it. He's even called him the God of gods and the King of kings, but he's never repented or bowed down to this God. And as we read the story of Daniel, we see that the evidence is mounting, and it's mounting, and finally now in chapter 4, God sort of says, hey, now's the time. After God is chasing the heart of Nebuchadnezzar through all of these miraculous things, God finally sends this vision to say, to say, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to choose. You need to choose this God of the Hebrew people, or you need to choose the way you were living before, but there is no double life here. You can no longer, King Nebuchadnezzar, just sit back and think of this God as one of many gods. And he says that you must follow God's ways. And those are repenting of his sins and showing mercy to the oppressed. Practicing righteousness. And this is a decision that many of us know we all must make at some time, right? That we must choose God or ourselves. That he's come to this this split in the road, this turning point that we've all come to. 
And so hear now the story of what happens after this, what Nebuchadnezzar decided. We'll be starting in verse 28 through to verse 37 at the end of the chapter. This is Daniel chapter 4. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. And at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything He does is right. All His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. Now, chapter 4 and chapter 5 actually go together really well. If you know this story, they sort of parallel each other. And we're going to talk about 5 next week. But what's amazing about this story is we see what happens... Well, one, when there's pride, but also when there's humility. You know, if you notice when we started reading in verse 28, it wasn't immediate. He had this vision, and then it says what? That a year later passed. You know, it wasn't that God gave him this ultimatum and said, you need to change now, you need to stop now. He gave him grace. He said, hey, you know, I can sort of imagine, you know, I don't know if God works the way I do. I'm sure he doesn't. But I can sort of imagine him just sort of saying, hey, you should do this now. And after a month or two, sort of like that general reminder, right? Hey, anytime. Anytime you're ready to repent. Remember that whole miraculous vision? And you know, No? Okay, anytime. And six months goes by. And it's like, hey, you know, it's, it's been a while. You're going to change? You're going you're to do this thing we talked about? And then finally, it says, yes, it's time to change. You know, King Nebuchadnezzar is walking around his city. And if you've heard about ancient Babylon and how mighty it was, there's a reason he was so proud. You know, one of the, the, the wonders of the ancient world was the hanging gardens, right? The, the, the history tells us and, 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 you know, legend tells us that he had actually built for his wife as this beautiful structure of gardens in the middle of the city. It tells us in his, history in these tablets that, that the, the city walls of Babylon were so great and impenetrable. They were so wide that on top of these walls, four horses, a chariot could be pulled by four horses going in both directions, So the tops of these city walls were wide enough for eight horses to go abreast. And he's standing there on top of his palace, on top of his kingdom, looking out and saying, this is great. Look what I have done. 
You ever have these moments? <laughs> now, most of us don't have a palace, and most of us don't have uh, city walls. Um, maybe you have a gate at your house, which would be very nice. But you think, and you think, wow, things are going great. You know, maybe it, it's when you're on vacation. You know, you just think, oh, gosh, this is so awesome. Maybe it's, it's after a really important meeting. Or maybe you just gave a presentation or did something really kind of good. And this attitude you have is just, hey, you know, this is wonderful. Let me just say, as we build our foundation for talking about humility here, that being thankful at all times is always a good plan. That when you feel that way, when you feel a little bit of pride welling up, when you feel a little bit of arrogance welling up, and maybe you've done something great, or maybe you've earned or deserved this, I do this all the time, and it actually sometimes bugs um, my wife. I'll just say, oh, thank you, Jesus, for this. And I do it not because I'm the most holy person, but to remind myself that I am not the one who has given me this thing, that I am not the one who has gotten me into this position, that God has done it for me. And, and I do it after, uh, you know, a good run on a beautiful morning. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for my health. This is nothing I have done. I do it when I'm traveling and I'm in a beautiful place. I don't think, oh gosh, I'm so glad I worked so hard and deserved this vacation. I want to be a person who just says, thank you, Lord, for this. Try it. An audible just thank you, Jesus, goes a long way towards growing in your humility. Because we see here that King Nebuchadnezzar did not thank the God of Daniel, did not thank the God of Israel, but instead he said, look at how great I am. This city is proof. And verse 31 very intentionally says that it was immediate, that as words were still on his lips, God speaks. You know, I pray that none of us would hear the words that God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar. That your royal authority, or that I am taking what I've given you back. You know, What's amazing about this, this has happened a couple of times in the Bible. You may recognize, uh, we talked about this once before with King Saul, when David, or when God takes the Holy Spirit away from King Saul, he actually takes the Holy Spirit from him and says, I'm done with you, Saul. I hope you never get to this or you never hear the voice of God say this to you, because what it shows us here is exactly what it says in the, at the very end of the chapter, that God can do these things, that God can give and that God can take away, and we know this to be true. But what I love about this part is it goes from people. See, if you look at Nebuchadnezzar, God was using people to speak to him. He was using Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He was using Daniel. He was using these events and these visions and these dreams to speak to him. But then finally, God goes and does it himself. And when we look at this, we want to be the opposite, right? We want to be humble. We want to be hearing God. And so let me just point out that we as people, if we want to grow in humility, we must be servants and people who listen to who God is putting around us, who listen to the people around us, to believe them and hear when God is doing these things, so that we don't find ourselves so far down the road that God intervenes in a way like this. And in verse 32, it tells us that, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be consequences for your actions. You know, in this, it's actually kind of a funny story. He humbles him so much that he takes away his sanity and makes him eat grass like a wild animal which I just think is just awesomely creative by God. But let's not dwell too much on exactly what it looked like and whether he actually... I once heard someone talk about whether or not he actually turned into a wild animal, like, a, like, like into an animal. I don't think that happened. Um, but let's focus on and maybe think about what this might mean for us. 
There's consequences for our actions. Nebuchadnezzar saw the power of God. Nebuchadnezzar saw what God was doing and decided that he didn't care. And this was the consequence. You know, we can't get around that Scripture is very clear that there are consequences for our actions. You know, and I wanted to mention this just because I think it's really important to talk about this occasionally when we talk about suffering and we talk about hard circumstance, is that much of what comes upon us is actually not from God, yet we are all too quick to blame God. When there's hard times in life, it's usually either something we've done or something other, someone else has done to us, what I would call self-inflicted or others-inflicted suffering right? Maybe we've made poor choices. Maybe we've been prideful. Maybe we've been arrogant. Maybe we've been just outright mean to someone. Or maybe someone has done evil to us. We've done nothing wrong, but they've just done evil to us. But in either circumstance, one of our defaults is just to blame God. You ever notice that? Someone else harms you, and you say, God, why would you allow this to happen? Well, that person is the one that harmed you. God didn't harm you. So, so as humanity, let, let's not be people. Let's not be brothers and sisters in Christ who immediately go to this thing of blaming God. And when I read this story, I see Nebuchadnezzar, and I think this is a consequence of his action. I mean, how many times have you done something stupid? I mean, just be honest. Think back to a time you did something really dumb, and there were consequences of your actions. And it was maybe not as humiliating as this, but, but you got knocked down a couple of pegs. Now, maybe you were a better person than I am, but it's happened to me a lot in my life. And one of the things I think about, that humility, as we talked about, is listening to God's servants and what God is doing around us. But humility is also not blaming others. Humility is not blaming others for our misfortunes. Humility is not saying that we do not deserve whatever we've been given. And then the story goes on in verse 34, 35, 36, and 37 to see the restoration of King Nebuchadnezzar. That after this time of judgment, which was seven units of something, that there's this time of judgment and Nebuchadnezzar's sanity is restored and he sees, finally, this is the one true God. He's placed back in charge of the kingdom. He's given even more to his kingdom, he says. And then he closes by just saying something that we all know to be true, but it's a good reminder that God can lift up the lowest and he can bring down the highest. And when we look at this narrative, we see this king, he conquered the Hebrew people. He brought these people from exile. And then God used these people to reveal himself to him, to show this great, mighty king that God is more powerful, that God is more mighty, and that God has more wisdom than him. And yet he resists. How many people, maybe it's you, maybe it's your story, Maybe it's a story of a family member. Maybe it's a story of a friend. How many people can you think of, or again, maybe it's your own story, where this is exactly what happened with you? That God sent messengers, and that God is sending helpers, and that God is trying to reveal himself, but you just keep resisting, or this person that you know keeps resisting. Maybe you've shared your own testimony. Maybe you've reached out. Maybe you've tried to help, but they still resist. You know, this story of Daniel, this story of King Nebuchadnezzar is the story of this world that we live in. That we are servants of a high God in a foreign land trying to show the world that our God is the one true God. And so we must, with humility, go into this world and share the truths of God that we know. 
We must be thankful and not say when we are successful that look at the great things I have done. But we should say, no, thank you, Jesus. We should be those who listen to others around us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, in humility to learn from them, not claiming we know everything. We should not be those who blame others for our misfortunes. We should not blame the world. We should not say that we are not responsible when we are. And even though many will still not believe, this is what God is calling us to. And I say this, one of my favorite lines in life, and you're going to get a glimpse into the cynical nature of me. Um, I, I toyed with telling you this and not saying this, and I'm just going to be honest. Um, the human condition of cynicism has affected me in a special way. Um, I, I say this line all the time, and let me explain it before you judge me too harsh, is this. The reason this is so hard for us is because people are idiots. Okay? We just are. People are idiots, and I don't mean other people, that I have something figured out. We are all stupid. There's a reason God calls us sheep so many times in the Bible. Have you ever tried to be around sheep? They're just stupid. And and what's amazing about this is this is the human condition. And if you need proof, let me just give you some proof. Let's go back to the first sin, the story of Adam and Eve, okay? This is just, there's no argument. God gave us everything we needed. And then God gave us much more than we needed. He blessed us with everything except one thing, right? And that one thing was the knowledge of good and evil. But we decided in our stupidity that that one thing was the one thing we wanted. That all this other stuff was great, but I really need that thing. Now, you can blame the devil if you want, but it's still our fault. Again, taking responsibility. Then we couldn't handle that one thing, right? This is how stupid we are. We want that thing. We want that thing. I don't know what to do with this. This is too much for me. So then we started running around killing each other and and taking advantage of one another and oppressing one another and oppressing God's kingdom and oppressing the animals and oppressing the earth because we didn't know what to do with this thing that God rightly said, you don't know what to do with this thing. I'm going to keep it for myself. And then so not only did we spurn God's initial gift of all of his creation, we also took that which God reserved for himself and ruined it as well. Showing that we as human beings are not capable of stewardship of this world. That we are not wise enough to be in in command. That we are not wise enough to be kings and rulers. That we are not patient enough to love one another. And we certainly are not righteous enough to cast judgment on anyone. And yet, we insist on doing all of these things in our pride and our arrogance. We desire power to do all of these things. We desire this time of of Nebuchadnezzar to stand on top and say, look at all the great things I have done. And yet God offers us another way. This is how good our God is. That in all of our stupidity of the human race, in all of our arrogance, God says, no, there is a way of humility. And that way is Christ. Many of us have not heard the audible voice of God telling us that he is taking his favor from us, and I pray you never do. So then how do we do this? How do we have the faith that we need to live this way? I chose the passage in Matthew chapter 8 of the centurion to give us a good example. Here we have this man who was powerful enough in his own right. He says he's in command of many men. He's he's powerful enough to have his own servant. 
And this centurion shows great humility before Christ to first of all care this much about his servant, right? If he has a servant, why not just get another servant? If he's sick, we'll just move on, we'll get another one. But no, he cares enough. He humbles himself to care for this servant who he's supposed to be in control of. And then number two, he doesn't need the proof we all need. Right? We would say, well, Jesus, yes, come to my house and, and, and lay hands on him. Or, or, or Jesus, yes, you know, show me that you can heal him. Or are you the Jesus who held, healed before? Can you do this? He just says, no. Say the word and you'll do it. I know you can. If you wonder how we can do this life, if you wonder how we can have faith, if you wonder how in the world are we going to overcome all the junk that is holding me down, I would argue that one of the answers that we need to focus on is humility. Because only humility before God will lead to the restoration of your soul. Only humility before God will lead to the restoration of your broken heart. And we see in both of these stories that humility is essential to restoration. That because of the humility of this centurion, his servant was healed. That when Nebuchadnezzar finally humbled himself before God, God exalted him and and restored him. Anyone who comes from a family with sin and brokenness knows that it is only humility before God that will restore those relationships. That will restore that addiction, that will restore that pain and that hurt. And only once we go to God in humility and he restores our heart, then do we have the wisdom and the knowledge and the ability to steward that which God has given us. Because without God, we have all shown that we cannot do this on our own. You know, this idea of humility is a very simple premise, but it's very difficult to achieve. It's difficult because as soon as we think we have it, we've lost it. And as soon as we ignore it, our pride comes in and takes control. And it's like this weird balancing act we have to do. It requires vigilance to be able to stay on top of it, as with much of the Christian life. We are saved, but we're not in heaven yet. It's a balancing act. So let me just encourage you. As you seek humility in your life, as you seek what God is calling you to in this life, be thankful. Practice humility by listening to God's servants around you. Practice humility by by stewarding and caring for what he has put in your care, that which he has entrusted to you. And, And we can't rest. We must daily seek to see what God is giving us and how we might humble ourselves to Christ in that. You know, I, I'm not sure where he is, probably downstairs eating. I have, said I'm not going to talk too much about, you know, being a dad in my sermons, but my son is now six weeks old as of yesterday, and it's awesome. And let me tell you one thing that I have absolutely learned more and more about humility. Um, I do not know how to do this, but God is gracious. And when I look at my son, and it's especially best when he's smiling and not screaming, but when I look at my son now, It is this amazing example to me that I'm not worthy of this. I have no great wisdom to be able to to raise this little thing into a man of God. That if God does this, it will be of his grace and not my power. 
And so that I must go now to God with my child, and it also has revealed more things in my marriage that I need to do as well, but that I am just a steward of this child. And that if I don't go to God in humility, asking for power and wisdom and grace every day, I surely am going to screw it up. Because if my son gets my negative characteristics of pride and arrogance and generational sin that comes on my side of the family and addiction and abuse and manipulation... I'm toast. And so I want to be a humble person who goes to God and says, I cannot do this on my own. When I say people are idiots, I'm not being judgmental. I'm saying we have shown that we cannot do it on our own. And as we talked about last week, it's not about circumstance. It's about where God has put you. We all have the ability to humble ourselves before God. Whether it's stewardship with land, with food, with animals, with people, stewarding the the knowledge and the wisdom God has given you? Have you thought about being more generous in your philosophy, in your theology? Are you approaching all things in life with the path of humility that Christ offers? Because when you talk about this idea of humility, the whole world can't even agree. The world disagrees on who to be humble to what. You know, Peter, or Carl Sagan, the famous astronomer and scientist, I love him, and a lot of the stuff he's said over the you know, years and in books, but he is very critical of Christians. And he said this, he said, Who is more humble? The scientist who looks at the universe with an open mind and accepts whatever the universe has to teach us? Or somebody who says everything in this book must be considered literal truth, never mind the fallibility of all the human beings involved. So he says, hey, humility is looking to the creation to teach us. Well, I say humility is going to the creator who made the creation, not the creation. You know, he, he can't agree with Christians on what humility is. You know, if we search for meaning and wisdom just to be able to dominate the world and understand the world, is that humility? Or maybe you've heard of that book, Eat, Pray, Love, that was made into a movie that spoke to so many people's souls. The author said this, to find the balance you want with humility, this is what you must become. You must keep your feet grounded so firmly on the earth that it's like you have four legs instead of two. That way, you can stay in the world. But you must stop looking at the world through your head. You must look through your heart. That way, you will know God. Okay. I'm sure Elizabeth Gilbert is a fantastic author. But if I look at the world through my heart, um, I'm going to be more judgmental, more cynical, more manipulative to this world. My heart is messed up, and I am very selfish, and I can be kind of mean to people, so no thank you. I'm not going to look at the world through my heart. I would much rather look at the world through God's wisdom and God's truth. When we talk about humility, let me just say this. It is not a complicated thing, but it will take our entire lives to work at it. And even then, we won't master it. Because to think we can master the idea of humility is to succumb to pride again. Remember this, as it was with Nebuchadnezzar, as it was with me, and as it was with you, humility to God led to the restoration of our hearts. Humility before God leads to grace, leads to acceptance. So if you hear nothing else that I say tonight, hear this. There is a God and we are not him. And this God is in control of all things. We are only in control of ourselves. 
And this God loves you dearly. And he shows it at this table that we celebrate tonight. That this God, we're going to sing about in a minute, uh, our servant king, gave us communion to remember. And what better place to start when we talk about God's servanthood and humility than here? Where we remember Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us, that he laid his life down humbly, that we would be reconciled to him. The night Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Christ took a cup and he poured it out and said, this is my blood, poured out for you. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we not only proclaim Christ's death, but we also proclaim his resurrection. And proclaiming his resurrection, we acknowledge what he said before he ascended to heaven, that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, and that we will go, therefore, and make disciples. And so as you consider what God is calling you to in your heart, consider this. There are areas where pride has crept into all of our lives. There are areas where we are clinging tightly to knowledge and power and control. And imagine what God could do if we gave him all of our hearts to restore. Imagine what God could do with the problem you're having at work and the problem you're having with family if you gave him all of your heart to rebuild so that you would be a messenger for him in another person's life. And so as we come to the table tonight, examine your heart. As the psalmist writes, search me and know me, God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. I would ask that as we uh, do this, you would come down this aisle this way and come down this way. We'll have two stations of of juice and one of bread. Um, And um, just know that if you proclaim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then this is for you. And, And if you're not sure, that's okay. But wherever you are tonight, I just want to say this. Please don't stay in your seat. Come forward like this so that I might just be able to say a quick prayer and blessing over you, even if you don't want to partake of the table tonight. Um, We are one body. We are his church whom he loves. And and, and this is something that we do in unity. Uh, And so um, I'm going to have a prayer for us. I'll invite our elders up to serve. And um, the musicians will come and and, and start playing. And um, I just invite you to please, as I said, examine your heart and what God might be showing you. And if there is something, if there is an area, if there is a place where pride has crept in and kept you from going to God humbly to receive his grace, that he would reveal that to us all. Would you please pray with me? Lord, thank you. You indeed are our servant king who showed us how to serve, how to love, and this table is proof. Father, we we are not worthy of this. Lord, we are not worthy to steward the things you have given us. We are not worthy to be in control of the things you have given us. So God, we give those things back to you in humility, asking you to show us the way, asking your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and guidance so that we do not rest on our own power, Lord, but we trust in you and all we say and do. Lord, lead us in worship, not just tonight, Father, but as we go through our week, lead us to the throne.
Lord, you are our servant king, and we love and trust you and trust in your example. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.